Smith-Hilmer, and I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl. And this week, I'm really excited to be talking to you about my first experience at a film festival and um, my first experience at Sundance Film Festival. So this was a really incredible opportunity for me. I have never experienced anything like this. I'm so incredibly lucky to have gone and attended this film festival. There's so many important and just absolutely amazing films that are coming out. Um, I think almost every single movie I saw was a world premiere except for two. I saw eight movies. I was there for three days. It was incredibly stressful. I would not recommend doing that. If I were you and you wanted to go, I would definitely go for, <laughs> I would definitely see two movies a day. That would probably be my, um, my max. So just for enjoyment, because it starts to get stressful, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I want to walk you through the eight films that I saw just very briefly. So this might be a kind of a short episode, but just because, um, I was there and I, you know, took some notes, I think that you will all find it very enjoyable. So with that being said, um, let's, let's just jump into the first film that I saw. So I'll give you all the details kind of like we're gossiping. Okay. Right. So, um, the first one I saw was called how to have sex. Um, and this was my first time in Park City, Utah, so getting around was a little difficult at first for me with the bus system, but I eventually figured it out. Um, this premiered at Cannes Film Festival, so this was not the premiere, but um, an absolutely incredible film nonetheless. Um, I'm going to read you the description from um, the Sundance Film Festival website because it, it, it just provides a little bit more detail. Um, so for the purposes of this show, I'm not going to be using IMDb, but, but I have something exciting about IMDb to tell you after we talk about how to have sex. So movie number one, how to have sex. Three British teenage girls go on a rite of passage holiday, drinking, clubbing, and hooking up in what should have been the best summer of their lives. As they dance their way across the sun-dense streets of Malia, they find themselves navigating the complexities of sex, consent, and self-discovery. While the girls seem initially equally captivated by the non-stop bacchanal, the film's increasing focus on bubbly, inexperienced Tara, who carefully reconsiders her vacation, her friendships, and herself after a questionably consensual late-night encounter on a beach, turns an incisive viewing experience into a searingly unforgettable one. In her feature debut, Molly Manning Walker embeds a devastatingly honest examination of sexuality and consent within a multifaceted for portrait of female friendships, all set against the backdrop of a vivid rendering of alcohol-fueled party culture. Manning Walker's script deftly captures her young protagonist's complicated bond, imparting vulnerabilities and jealousies in dialogue that never feels less than fully authentic. Actress Mia McKenna-Bruce allows us extraordinary access into Tara's shifting, constant emotional state, unmistakably imparting her character's unvoiced trauma and confusion. This film does contain depictions of sexual violence, and while it's not... <sighs> incredibly graphic it is uh, still graphic nonetheless and still sad and uncomfortable nonetheless um molly manning walker stayed for a q a after and um, we spoke to her about the dialogue and and everything you know the dialogue in this film is so natural half of it at times almost doesn't seem like it's scripted and she kind of confirmed that sometimes it's not um you know they would have you know, takes where they would at first say, okay, go by the script, and then they would do it again, and the take would be just, um, you know, them kind of moving with the lines, but, you know, kind of improvising here and there where they felt like they wanted to or needed to. So that was really interesting to hear. Um, yes, I will admit that 
it's it's one of those movies that really makes you think about yourself right um so these three you know young girls are taking this this trip to Malia for the summer and they're supposed to be having the best you know most fun time ever but there's so much pressure placed on Tara the main character from the two other girls that she's with you know to lose her virginity and to have sex and um inevitably she ends up in a position with um a boy who's part of another friend group that they meet um on their trip who's staying at the same hotel as them and um unfortunately he doesn't really give tara an option um this is what we're talking about when we talk about the beach scene he doesn't really give tara an option for what she'd like to do on the beach and so she spends the rest of the trip in silence and alone and just like trying to um, act like everything's normal so that things will go back to normal so she doesn't have to think about it anymore which obviously doesn't really work um, it won't those feelings won't just go away and um, yeah it, it's the resolution at the end of the movie is essentially that she tells one of the friends but not the other and you know life goes on and so it kind of felt like for me I was a little I don't want to say disappointed but I was a little kind of like I don't know that sounds a lot like real life right it didn't give me like a storybook happy ending but I don't think that's what I really wanted I think this one made much more sense um this is also sorry I should also say category this is part of the um spotlight category and I would also like to add that the music is absolutely amazing like amazing 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 so good um yeah I will say this movie is sometimes hard to watch but if you get the opportunity to see it please do when we talk about the beach scene we're talking about you know the night that Tara is raped um on the beach by one of the friends that they met at the hotel and um molly manning walker kind of at the q a lets us in on a little secret which was that at first um when people saw that scene it was almost like they couldn't figure out what was wrong with it um and that was really troubling to hear so yeah i i think this movie will make you question a lot of your behaviors and maybe if you're regardless of whether you're male or female or you know what whatever gender you identify with i think everybody can learn something from this um women can learn how not to treat their friends and men can learn what it means to ask for um consent to partake in a sexual activity right so then after i saw how to have sex i uh this is where the um the IMDb information comes in. So I was sitting in the movie theater and I went to go sit down and I was going to, um, they make you kind of filter into the theaters from sitting in the inside to the outside, right? So you can fill up the seats more quickly. And so I, I came in and I went to go sit down and I noticed that there was a man behind me who, um, the way the seats were like staggered, looked like because I am so tall that I might have been blocking his view and so I went to turn around to ask if it was okay if I sat there and I overheard a conversation between this man and another man who were both behind me and they were talking about work basically they both had on press passes and so they started to chat and when they did the man behind me says when asked what he does for work he just very casually goes, oh yeah, I'm uh, the founder and CEO of IMDb. I just want to let that sink in for everybody. So I literally met the person who came up with the idea for the Bible. So let that sink in. Okay, that's pretty fucking cool. Anyway, he was really, really nice. Um, 
and I don't ask typically to take pictures with people, and, and I didn't ask this. I didn't ask Mr. Needham either, Colin Needham. Um, I didn't ask him either. My philosophy on photos is that um, it, when you're approaching someone who's famous or approaching someone who's very wealthy, it kind of almost feels like you're just looking for clout to gain by asking for a photo, but it's a much more genuine connection that you can have with that person if you don't ask for one. So I'd love, you know, and next year if I if I go back to Sundance, which I'd like to go to again, then um, if I see him again, I can say, hey, I sat next to you last year, and it was a it was a jolly good time. So, Mr. Colin Needham and I sat through a film in the U.S. dramatic competition called Stress Positions. Stress Positions is about a man named Terry Goon. Terry Goon is keeping strict quarantine in his ex-husband's Brooklyn Brownstone while caring for his nephew, a 19-year-old model from Morocco named Balul, bedridden in a full-leg cast after an electric scooter accident. Unfortunately for Terry, everyone in his life wants to meet the model. Stress Positions is as much a finely tuned time capsule of the frantic fear and formative power of the pandemic as it is a roadmap out of dark places guided by profound humanity. A careful balance between a consistent razor-sharp humor and the development of a distinctive cinematic tone creates a particular mood and energy that is not easily forgotten. Returning to the Sundance Film Festival after her 2021 appearance as writer, director, and star of the episodic My Trip to Spain, Theta Hamill once again proves herself to be a prolific powerhouse with her directorial debut. Hamill's clever script, energetic performance, Confident directorial style and beautifully crafted score come together in an exciting whirl of charisma and social commentary. John Early at Sundance with My Trip to Spain in 2021 and Save Yourselves in 2020 delivers a hilariously tense performance among a talented young cast. Stress positions at once ratchets up raw nerves and also helps us release them. Stress positions is is very funny. I know it's in the dramatic competition, but oh my god, is it funny. I mean, there were times where the entire theater was laughing. Um, it is, yeah, it's essentially, you know, exactly what it is. It's, there's a man named Terry, and him and his um, husband are getting divorced. He hasn't signed the papers yet, but he's trying to get rid of all of his ex-husband's stuff, right? And his ex-husband has already run off with another younger man, and they're in Germany. And um, everyone in his life is accusing him of having, you know, a sexual relationship with his nephew, Balul, the model. When in actuality, he really is just sitting with a broken leg in Terry's home. And Terry's taking care of him. He is... You know, um, it's during COVID is when this film takes place. So the hospitals were full. There wasn't really necessarily anywhere for someone like Balul to be to get treatment. Like he basically just had to go home. So <clears throat> this is a funny movie because Terry is trying to keep such a strict quarantine from COVID and no one else in his life seems to give a fuck about it. I mean, people are constantly coming in and out of his house. People are, you know, bringing things over. People are touching things. People are breaking things. Like, it's just a never-ending, stress-filled, you know, two hours. What I will say is that it is also a really powerful story about self-discovery and what it means to determine what you want for yourself in this life and in this world and I think that that is really important and this was a world premiere so that was also really really cool okay so we're still on me being in the first day of the festival um but this is the third film I saw the third film I saw is called Vini Vidi Vici and it was the world premiere, part of the World Cinema Dramatic Competition. This is a really, really good 
good one, okay? This is one of those where you say, I think I've heard this story before. And then it starts to develop more. And then you're like, oh no, oh, this is a much better story. The Maynards and their children live an almost perfect billionaire family life. Amon is a passionate hunter but doesn't shoot animals as the family's wealth allows them to live totally free from consequences. In this social satire, directors Daniel Holsell and Julia Neiman push the rich's untouchability to an extreme, revealing the consequences of an unchecked system and the dangers of a world where people are not accountable for their actions. The Maynards cannot be stopped, not by another man's word or journalistic evidence or even the law. Now there's only freedom without limits and impossibilities, no matter the violence. Those with wealth are free to do as they please, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. The Machiavellian family study allows the rich to be as fearsome and violent as they pretend to be kind and giving. This film contains violence and gore. As soon as this one was over, I looked at Kevin and the people next to me, and I said, I need... I need a Q&A. I need the directors, Daniel Holsell and Julia Neiman, to come up here and, and atone for their sins. I mean, this was, like, sinfully good and very, very funny. The opening scene, which I'll reveal to you, is that there's a bicycle race going on. And as I hinted at already um, in the description... They don't hunt animals. They hunt people. And so the opening is there's a bike race going on. And you hear a shot fired at a bike rider and then another shot fired at the same bike rider. And then he falls over the side of um, the barricade on the side of the mountain to keep him on the road. And Mr. Maynard just comes right up and gets on the bike and takes it and says, huh, I'm recycling. Like, so funny. So, so, so funny. But yes, they're hunting people. It's it's a little difficult to watch. Um, in the Q&A afterwards, we learned that this spent nine years in production um, because there were so many changes that various, you know, production companies wanted them to make that they just refused to make. Um, and it was important for Daniel and Julia to portray this family as loving, um, whereas in a typical eat the rich family dynamic, you know, the family's not so loving towards another. Let's think about like, um, oh, a succession, for example, like they're, they're not a loving family, right? But the, this family is like, they genuinely love one another so much, which is so sweet and kind to see. Uh, it's actually inspired by a real person. Um, not that the real person hunts people, but they just thought it would be an interesting and kind of funny thing to throw in there. But essentially when they wanted to make this movie, they had to go out and find someone who would have the information that they needed. And so to do that, they found a, um, who knows I'm assuming, I'm assuming an, an executive vice president of Deutsche Bank in Austria. This is an Austrian film, um, so you will have to watch it with subtitles unless you speak German. But they found this man who agreed to talk to them, and he is, I'm assuming, an executive vice president. But he is from Deutsche Bank. And anyway, he has jets and and helicopters, and the crew had you know said that they needed one, and he just called and got one for them to use and um you know he would be available for questions and he was always very kind but you know there would always he would always be going somewhere going to do something and this man actually did like to hunt just not people and he owned some land out in Namibia that he would you know take his private jet to and to go hunt on and um you know things like that and what's really funny is like they have this family in this movie has such a desire to get caught like they actually want to get caught to the point that it's driving them crazy it's driving them insane that no one will catch them doing these things which makes it even more hysterical and you know i i think some of this went over people's heads because 
I was in the theater laughing my ass off and um, like nobody else in there was laughing with me. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm not entirely sure. But there was a lot of studying into what the ultra rich and ultra elite, you know, dynamic looks like. Um, the one of the directors, Daniel Hussle, did say that there's a part in the movie where they are um, the daughter, oldest daughter, is going to steal some snacks and food from a gas station, which is like why she has so much money; she doesn't need to steal anything. But she just does it just because she can. And that scene, coupled with another scene where there is a a lawyer present. I don't want to give away too much information, guys. I just want to give highlights. Um, Those two scenes were inspired by a time in which Daniel Hulsell was out for drinks with a girlfriend who is now his ex-girlfriend. And the tab was really, really expensive. And she said, okay, well, we can just walk the tab, but we both have to stick to the story that, you know, we paid cash. And for some reason, they just can't find it. And this ex-girlfriend of his was disgustingly rich, specifically compared to him and his financial position at the time. So they did that. They ended up getting, you know, a ticket in the mail and a subpoena. And they, um, she ended up hiring a lawyer for both of them. And they ended up getting it dismissed. So, you know, money will get you what you need, whether that's fortunate or unfortunate. I think sometimes it's unfortunate. Okay, so day two. Day two, I also saw three films. The first one is from the U.S. Documentary Competition. Uh, This is the world premiere of Love Machina. Futurist Martine and Bina Rothblatt commission and advanced humanoid AI named Bina48 to transfer Bina's consciousness from a human to a robot in an attempt to continue their once-in-a-lifetime galaxy love affair for the rest of time. Love Machina is where future meets love, where love meets humanity, where humanity meets AI. Director Peter Sillen of Benjamin Smoke, Three Teams, One City, One Year, Develop, delivers excuse me a film transcending time and space. Sillen's approach feels as imaginative and dreamlike as our protagonists. Love Machina is an entrancing watch, packed with discovery, curiosity, and heart. Sillen shares a love story between Martine and Bina Rothblatt, entangling us in their world of passion and extravagant determination. At the forefront of many social movements, Martine and Bina set out to do what previously seemed impossible taking their love story past till death do us part to as long as we both shall live. Thoughtful and inquisitive, Sillen dares to transport us to infinity and beyond. Yeah, I, this one was really interesting. It wasn't something that I think I would normally pick to watch. Um, I think for me, if I were to rank or, you know, try to try to attempt to rank these films, I don't know if this one would land for me as high on my list, and that's not for any particular reason other than I very much struggle with how AI works and operates, especially when it comes to humanoid AIs. And I know you're saying, well, Carolyn, it's pretty simple. Like, you just, you know, upload some stuff, and you program it, and it talks, and like, yeah, I got all that. But the true, you know, capacity under which it functions and and how is something that I still really struggle with. And unfortunately, that's not something that was really explored or expanded upon here. So for me, I I feel like a little bit of it was just kind of lost on me. And I know that that's sad to say, but... I did at this, um, I did, you know, learn a pretty decent amount, I would say, even though, like, I feel like my basic level understanding isn't great, um, this is, 
this these people have accomplished a, a wonder of amazing things in in their life and um specifically talking about you know bina bina is um one component of the martine and bina relationship and she has been working you know endlessly for years since before siri was even you know rolled out to get this humanoid ai of herself and they're collecting things like mind files right which are things that are uploaded into bina's bina 48 system to you know give her memories that she can recall and topics that she will talk about and um just like different it's just really interesting like her mannerisms like she doesn't have arms or legs or anything or a torso yet she's just um shoulders up for now um but eventually hopefully right she'll have a full body a humanoid body um martine okay invented sirius xm radio which is pretty fucking cool and um Martine also has been doing a lot of work on this website called LifeNot, which is a mind file hosting website, to my understanding. That's like the best way I know how to explain it. Um, Martine also started United Therapeutics, um, which is a company basically responsible for um, developing a new type of pig who and these pigs are used to like supply organs to humans um i do remember whenever one of these uh was successfully completed there was a pig heart that was transplanted into a man who was struggling with heart failure um they also martine also um you know started developing this this thing called 3d bioprinting which can print organs in actual like tissue um so that that can be used uh it's absolutely amazing how much people will try to leave the world a better place than how they found it and i think martine and um, bina are two great examples of that there is you know always the challenge with humanoid ai and ai in general that you know you're challenged between the expressions that they have and the knowledge that they have. And sometimes it's really difficult for those to develop, you know, kind of at the same time. So they don't always do, but, um, it is pretty cool that Bina 48 is the first human AI based on a living person. So Bina 48 also was at the stock market (laughs) ringing the bell. So, um, no, this was really cool. It was really interesting. Like I said, I think a lot of it's just hard for me because I don't quite understand how the, I don't quite understand the intricacies of how it all works. But again, if you have an opportunity to see this film, it was absolutely phenomenal. Looking now to brief history of a family from the World Cinema Dramatic Competition. Um, This is the world premiere and my first introduction into modern Chinese cinema. So I really hope that if you get a chance to see this, you will. I don't know exactly how different um, foreign films approach the market to be on streaming services, but I really hope that this one will end up on somewhere like Mubi or maybe Apple TV. Um, Just absolutely incredible. So a middle class family's fate becomes intertwined with their only son's enigmatic new friend in post one child policy China, putting unspoken secrets, unmet expectations and untended emotions under the microscope. After an incident at their private school, Wei, an only son from a middle class family and Shu, a quiet, highly perceptive boy, find themselves connected through some mysterious energy that draws them intimately into each other's lives. In his feature debut, writer and director Jean Gilles elegantly unfurls a story where just under the surface of family dinners, polite manners, and daily school and extracurricular activities lies dark truths and hidden yearnings threatening to explode into sight. With an arresting, sharp style and a unique sensitivity to the socioeconomic status of its characters, Brief History of a Family is an exciting new expression of Chinese film on the world stage. 
um, after the film, they gave everybody um, in attendance a beautiful set of chopsticks with like a little, you know, uh, held in like a pamphlet of the film itself. It was absolutely amazing. I have them. I don't think I'll ever use them because I want to keep them. Um, but no, I mean, I'm an only child myself, right? So like a lot of the things in this movie are things that maybe like I would imagine myself feeling like if I was in this situation, although I don't think I would take it as far as Wei does. Um, essentially, we have Shu, who is like quiet, smart. He kind of wears the same clothes every day. He dresses down. His mom is dead. His dad's an alcoholic. And um, Wei throws a basketball one day on you know, like a playground type situation where Shu is doing some pull-ups um, and the basketball hits Shu and he falls and he's injured. So Wei takes him to the nurse's office and whatnot and, you know, then invites him over for dinner one day. So, you know, he kind of starts to be part of this family um, over time and we find out that his dad is um, abusive. And so... Uh, there's a night where things come to a head and essentially Shu's dad does something that results in his own death and Shu doesn't intervene or like try to save his dad he just lets him die um, so then Wei's family you know invites Shu in and he starts to you know wear their clothes and live in the same bedroom as Wei and he starts to travel and he's almost like everything that the parents wish that their son Wei was and so Wei starts to become very jealous and very resentful of Shu and he's you know kind of just trying to live his own life he's not trying to take anything away from Wei necessarily um it was really really interesting there's so much left unsaid in this movie, there's almost as much silence as there is dialogue, which I think is really... I think we could use a lot more of that, right? And there's a lot of use in this of uh, synthesizers for the sound that was shot in 37 days during COVID. So, you know, it was definitely under some, some pressure. The film was originally 110 minutes longer than the version that we see now, which is crazy to me. So they had to cut 110 <laughs> um, minutes from it. And it's the directors, you know, and the cast did a, um, a Q&A after where they're telling us all these things. And they also wanted to highlight to us that I guess in China, the which I didn't know this, but there's kind of like a saying, you know, when you say home sweet home, well, they, they really say that. And so... You know, Wei's family is very welcoming. His mom and dad are, you know, successful and have money and they make beautiful dinners every night and they travel. And um, it's when we talk about home sweet home, we're also kind of talking about the mysteriousness of the home life. Right. So that's where we see Shu. His. He doesn't talk about his home life. Right. Until somebody asks him. So everybody every day is assuming he's going to go home and he's going to go to home to his family and he's going to have dinner and he's going to do his homework and he's going to go to bed. But that's not the life that he lives, right? He lives a life in fear. He lives a life of abuse. He lives a life um, that seemingly not any of the other people at his school are also living. So um, there's also the use of microscopic uh, lenses and slides a lot and um, filming through like holes or circular windows and these are supposed to give insight into what is going on inside rather than like showing violence or showing the outward expression on the outside so like for example if somebody's getting really angry it will cut to a microscope slide of you know veins or whatever right and so um it's kind of an interesting dynamic, actually, and I think I like it a lot. It was definitely effective, and it's more powerful than showing the expression on your face. So, yeah, that was that was cool. I really enjoyed this. Uh, the sound design is absolutely amazing, 
And if you have a chance to find this, I would recommend that you find it and see it as soon as possible. If you can't, don't worry, I'll be on the lookout for it. I'd like to, you know, eventually come back and tell you where to find all these things to watch them. So, um, yeah, I'll be doing that for you. Now, the only midnight film, which midnight is the, you know, kind of horror category or thriller category or, you know, anything scary category, I was only able to grab tickets to see one. Um, My first Sundance was a little bit of an amateur experience, I would say, and so for me, I, um, I didn't realize truly how many people go on opening weekend, and I should have opted to go a little later, I think, although it was really awesome being there for opening weekend. I digress. This is about the midnight world premiere of It's What's Inside. If you're going to ask me what is inside, I'm not going to tell you. I made a solemn swear and promise to the director of this film in the Q&A after that I would not tell anyone what is actually inside. A pre-wedding party descends into an existential nightmare when an estranged friend shows up with a mysterious suitcase. Writer-director Greg Jardine, playful, sexy, and science fiction-infused feature debut, plays out within a twisted parlor game among a flock of raffish social media obsessives. Within the soapy fun of the spirited party atmosphere, Jardine ratchets up the tensions and thrills, cunningly deploying stylish expository clues so that the audience can marvel at the fast-paced plot twists without being left behind. Featuring Alicia Debnam Carey, Brittany O'Grady, and James Morosini, the dynamic, up-and-coming ensemble cast play multiple variations of their romantically entangled, secret-keeping characters with a winking wit and humor. The production's splashy, colorful visual style echoes the exuberance of high-concept premise, allowing for a layered delight in this immensely entertaining, wholly original brain teaser of a film. And again, because I am not going to tell you what's actually inside the suitcase, there's definitely going to be not a lot I can say, considering everything in this movie revolves around what's in the suitcase. Um, But what I can tell you is... There is a really effective use of uh, red light. So there will be like scenes where there's two characters talking and, you know, when they flash the red light over the two characters that are talking, it reveals who those two characters actually are that are talking to one another. And... It's a really interesting, like, little commentary about how some people just can't seem to understand that what is inside of you is actually what matters about you, not what's outside of you. And ladies, if you have a man who's with you or that you're with that doesn't seem to appreciate what's on the inside and is more concerned with telling you about how they feel about your outside, leave that man. He is not worth your time or energy. Just throw, take the trash out, okay? So on my last day, I started the morning early with a premiere um, of a film called Girls State. Now in 2020, there was a film called Boys State, and so this is just the girl counterpart. Um, it's not a sequel or a prequel. It's more like a sibling to Boys State, and um, I'm so glad that I woke up early to go see this movie. It moved me in ways that I can't really put into words. Teenage girls from wildly different backgrounds across Missouri navigate a week-long immersive experiment in American democracy, build a government from the ground up, and reimagine what it means to govern. Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss's anticipated return to the captivating world of teenage-led politics follows ambitions unfolding as hundreds of teenage girls gather to build a representative democracy in Missouri during a session of Girls' State co-hosted alongside Boys' State. 
As the girls run for office, including governor and Supreme Court seats, they also methodically preside over a reproductive rights case, while the real-life overturning of Roe v. Wade hangs in the balance. McBain and Moss stay embedded in girl state, following several charismatic candidates, but these aspiring changemakers keenly take note of the boy state program and the differences between the two, sparking outcry and awakening. Girl State definitely reflects urgent issues around gender equality and our political landscape through the energetic and tenacious lens of youth. The candidates' resilience and adaptability shine through, revealing that no closed doors are stopping these girls. So essentially, I, I've never heard of this type of, um, like, I guess program, like high school program. Um, but yeah, essentially these girls go and boys go but they're two separate programs they complete they complete both programs entirely separate from one another at this time it just so happened that they were on the same campus and i don't know if that's like the goal going forward but anytime the girls attending the state program would bring up to the people running the program that they were noticing some differences between their program and the boys program they were quickly shut down and told not to talk about boys state and that we're here to focus on girls state. Like for example, they have pretty strict dress codes at girls state. Um, their, you know, shoulders couldn't really be showing if they wore a tank top, it had to be three fingers wide. If, um, they had something that had like a low cut back, they could wear it for a short period of time, but had to like put a sweater or something on over it. And they were noticing quickly that the boys were just wearing, like, cut-off t-shirts and, like, they didn't really have a dress code. Um, I don't think it's any news to anyone out there listening, but girls' bodies and women's bodies are not really... I guess, to me, like, if you're going to critique what I'm wearing, then you have to critique what the man next to me is wearing and things have to apply to both. It can't just be, like, well, girls have boobs, so, like their shoulders can't show. I, I don't know where the reasoning comes from. Um, but these girls are absolutely incredibly smart. Like, I don't think that when I was in high school and even like maybe up till halfway through college that I was as knowledgeable about current events as these women are. These young women are so impressive. They will go so far. They are Sometimes, you know, they say things that I didn't necessarily understand. Like, for example, one of the candidates, Emily, says that um, ARs are more accurate in home invasion situations. Uh, I don't know that that's statistically proven anywhere. Um, but no, these, these girls are so ambitious. They, will go, they are going to go on to be fantastic scholars, researchers, um, proud women that I... I'm thankful that I got to watch them evolve over this experiment. Um, in the end, they do end up writing to... They have, like, a newspaper there. And one of the girls decides that she's going to submit an article about the raging differences that she notices between girl state and boy state. And it actually ends up getting published. So I do hope that, you know, the next time girl state is uh, is occurring for these women in Missouri, that there will be some pretty significant changes. Like even the boy state had the state governor come and induct, you know, the new people who they elect throughout their state program. And the girls didn't get anything close to that. So um, good for these women. Good for these ladies. I, I am so, you know, impressed by them. And I hope that they will continue on this path to not allowing others to influence them. And the final film that I saw that I had the absolute pleasure of seeing is called A New Kind of Wilderness. Now, I didn't go to the premiere. I actually went to the showing the next day after the premiere. But this is also from the World Cinema Documentary Competition. In a forest in Norway, a family lives an isolated lifestyle in an attempt to be wild and free, but a tragic event changes everything and they are forced to adjust to modern society. 
The Portrait of the Payne Family is an intimate encounter with a family coming to terms with a new reality. For years, the family of six enjoyed a slower-paced, independent life in harmony with nature on a picturesque farm. Now they're at a turning point, and Jacobson captures their journey with a caring eye. The vulnerability and compassion they extend to each other, the land and their animals are tenderly and beautifully observed by a camera that feels part of the family while home videos woven throughout provide meaningful insight into years past. Joyous moments spring through the heartache and the pain, strong bond and love for each other guide them through each challenge that they face. Jacobson creates a sensitive, affectionate, and completely heartfelt space that is as much about navigating grief as it is about graciously accepting change. Yeah, this this is the only movie that I, or the only film that I was in that actually received a standing ovation, which is pretty incredible. Um, the grand jury um, viewers were also there when I was there. It was absolutely moving heartfelt loving tender sad full of grief and really aims to just answer the lifelong question of am I really doing the best that I can for my children right it's something that I think people struggle with sometimes and um this the dad of the Payne family is just he's remarkable he is an English man who moved to Norway to live with his wife um, they had three children together. Um, she had one from a previous marriage and they all moved out to, you know, a farm in Norway to, they bought a piece of land, they fixed it up, they rebuilt their home, they, um, they grew their own food, they, you know, went camping and fishing and they, everything, like they had animals and all the food that they, all the meat that they had came from these animals, like the most sustainable family maybe on earth right and they're just incredible and well-rounded and they're um the kids are homeschooled and yeah the mom she she ends up passing she ends up passing um she gets sick and because she was working as a photographer and someone who ran like a blog she was able to bring in income to like pay their mortgage but after her passing the dad would have been the only one with an income and so he didn't have a job at that time so they ended up having to sell their farm that they built completely from you know completely on their own and moving somewhere else um closer to a city the kids had to go you know enroll in school and in daycare and the dad doesn't really have strong ties to Norway, but, you know, it was his wife's, like, one of her dying wishes that he really tried to make it work and he really tried to stay in Norway so that that's where their their kids could grow up. And it is so beautiful. The whole family ended up being at the Q&A after. And there are such beautiful people inside, outside, absolutely warriors of you know, leaving everything they've ever known behind and starting over somewhere new, which is one of the hardest things that you could do, right? Um, making friends, not ever having been in a school institution before, like knowing what to do or how to act or, you know, they're given iPads, right? Well, the kids have never had iPads and part of the curriculum is that they have to watch TV, but they've never watched TV. So, it's it's absolutely remarkable to watch these people evolve and how you know their father is just so full of love they're so full of life they're they're so committed to making the family bond you know work and it was it's it's beautiful it's it's so beautiful after the um screening they actually handed us out uh like a polaroid style photo of one of their sons and it says a new kind of wilderness on it and I will treasure that for the rest of my life. It was an incredibly special experience. And um, after I left this showing actually, I was leaving the theater and I bumped into Martine Rothblatt, which was really crazy. So she, um, again, is the founder of Sirius uh, XM Radio and um, I guess her film had a screening um, in the same theater, maybe after the one that I saw, and so she was there for Q and A, uh, and really, really great to to run into her. She's 
an incredible she's the smartest person okay she just is um but anyway guys that's my sundance recap i i enjoyed my time very much and i can't wait to go back i do hope that you will take time to watch some of these films if you're able to access them i will continue to look to you know see uh what gets posted and where if i find anything i do have three more movies that i purchased online showings for which will take place from today through the 28th so um i will give a small recap of those the next episode and i really hope you enjoyed this and maybe ignited a small spark for a film that you maybe didn't have before just a reminder before I go that The Final Girl on 6th Ave is part of the incredible Morbidly Beautiful Network. Morbidly Beautiful is your home for horror. If you love horror in any way, shape, or form, then you are welcome at Morbidly Beautiful. You can find my podcast and many others like it, such as All American Spook Show and Not Your Final Girl, as well as insightful film reviews and so much more. So head on over to morbidlybeautiful.com to check it all out and show us some love. You can find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or requests, you can email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com or you can send me a message on Instagram at finalgirlon6. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. And I will talk to you in two weeks. Never forget that I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl. Bye. (laughs) 